Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so happy you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Beekeepers Naturals. Beekeepers Naturals provide sustainable wellness solutions using superfoods from the hive. Today's guest is someone who I discovered online about a year ago and loved what she was doing with her online magazine, You Revolution. She and her husband started it as she has depression and he has leukemia, and they wanted to support people living with chronic illness and disabilities. So welcome, Corinne Gray. Hi, thank you. And it is great to be here. I'm super excited to chat with you. So happy to have you here. So let's start with telling us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Yeah, um, gosh, who you are is such a loaded question these days. I would say now I'm starting to define myself as a woman living with mental illness. I am originally from Trinidad and Tobago, which is a teeny tiny island country in the Caribbean. And I actually was, and I still consider myself an artist. So I grew up playing music and drawing and painting. And I actually was a professional singer for quite a few years. So I've always, I think of myself also as a creative individual. I have lived all over the world. I have worked in a number of different professions, whether it was singing to working in the NGO world to working with the United Nations to now running my own business. And so even thinking of what I do Besides being the CEO of a magazine for people living with chronic illness or disability, I also just think of myself as someone who's trying to create change around inclusion in this world. And so that's kind of how I'm learning to define myself these days. I love that so much. What kind of music would you sing or be involved in? So I actually used to sing jazz. And then after music school, because I did my bachelor's in music, I had a friend who called me up one day because she had a brother who was working for a company in Malaysia. And she's like, do you want to go to Asia and sing? And I was like, absolutely. So I was working for this company that managed like hotel bands. And so at that point, it was a lot of pop music. And then I ended up moving to Israel after that. uh, I moved there for love. And there I was doing my own music as well, which I would describe as a combination of jazz, soul, reggae, acoustic, that kind of sound. I'm now remembering that when we first connected, we had that Israel connection. Love that. Right. Yeah, that's true. So where are you living currently? So right now I live in Spain, in Barcelona province, but about 40 minutes outside of the city. We live in the region where they make wine and cava. So we're just like surrounded by vineyards and it's absolutely remote. We have one neighbor who can't see us. And wow. Yeah, it's beautiful. I've always loved Spain. It's a gorgeous country. How long have you been living there? So I actually first moved to Barcelona in 2012. And I was here for a couple of years. And then I moved to Geneva 
in 2014 and then moved back with my husband who I met in Geneva in 2017. Got it. Okay. So when we first started recording, you said you recently started identifying yourself as someone living with a mental illness. So I want to dive right into that. You were diagnosed with depression during your first year of university. Tell us a little bit about that time in your life. Yeah, I mean, so just because I've had a lot of time to think back, I honestly feel like, you know, all the memories I have of being a child and being a teenager, I just always felt sad, like sad was my baseline. And I remember a couple of pointed moments of just feeling extremely dark. And so by the time I got to university, I was really struggling. And it wasn't like an academic struggle because I'd always done well academically, but I think it was just change of environment, you know, obviously university is very different to high school. And I just felt myself extremely going down, you know, feeling really dark and just crying and just not really understanding what's wrong with me. So that's the first time I really sort of sought some help to try to figure out what was happening. And yeah, they diagnosed me with depression at that point. How did it feel getting that diagnosis? Well, I grew up in a very evangelical household, so it doesn't carry a good feeling at all. It's actually something that can carry a lot of shame, and the outlook in the evangelical community tends to be, this is like a spiritual problem, and you can pray about this, or it's a demon, and I didn't have support from my mom in that way, so... I had started taking medication that they prescribed and she was actually very disappointed because, you know, the community I grew up in, it was just something to be shameful of. And so I don't think I felt very good about it, to be honest. And I didn't actually take the medication for that long. And I think I spent a lot of time after that, just kind of ignoring that that was a part of me. Wow. So where did you find support? I mean, if you didn't have it within your family... Was there a community that you sought out yourself? No. And looking back, I realized I just kind of ignored it. You know, by that point, I finished university and I went traveling in Asia and all these exciting things happened to me. And I think I just was able to push it the back of my mind because life was already so exciting, you know, and I think I spent most of my 20s not thinking I was depressed or not believing that I had mental illness. I just ignored it completely. So at what point did you realize, like, I got to start taking care of my health? Did that come out on a certain day, a certain situation? Yeah, it was a number of situations, but it really wasn't until more recently. So my first most significant relationship, which was in Israel and when that ended and I had to leave, that really did cause like a huge mental health crisis, which I just kind of attributed to a breakup. And so I just accepted being depressed for a long time. (laughs) And then it wasn't until I really started working after graduate school. um, And I had my first like breakdown, did I really like pay attention and say, okay, maybe something here is wrong. And so does that mean that you started taking prescriptions for antidepressants? Like, how did you manage that afterwards? Yeah, exactly. So after that breakdown, I started seeing a psychiatrist. 
and they put me on antidepressants and I've basically been in therapy since then. I mean, on and off because I continue to have a very sort of global life. But yeah, I would say since 2013 is when I've, you know, been on antidepressants full time and I've been doing therapy and yeah, so it's definitely more of a recent thing. And so what's your relationship with your mom now, given the situation? We're definitely closer, but there are some beliefs that I don't think she's going to not have. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think she's ever going to change the way she thinks. I mean, she knows that I take antidepressants, but it's still not something that she supports. And, you know, I even hear her say things that make me think that she also is struggling with either depression or anxiety. But for her, it's still very much something that she can just pray about. So that's how she tackles that. And so I've kind of learned to accept like the limitations of people in my life. Like, yes, you very much want everybody in your life to be a therapist and say only the perfect thing, but... That's pretty unrealistic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for me, it's been about just accepting this is someone's limitation and this is never going to be a way that they're going to be able to support me. How did you get to that point? Very painfully. <laughs> I mean, you know, every time you sort of, get into a depressive episode and you know that comes with extra thoughts of loneliness and unworthiness and feeling like no one cares and I realized I had been playing out a pattern for quite a long time which is getting upset when people didn't care for me the way that I wanted them to and it sort of took me I guess just the reasoning in my head and realizing like oh they actually just can't. And it's not that they don't want to, but that's just not what they're capable of. And when I started realizing that I did have people in my life that way, I just kind of reasoned with myself, maybe I should just spend more time with those people when I need them and just accept that other people are not for that. Do you find that there's specific language that you need to share with friends or people that mean something to you? on how to care for you and need to sort of guide them in that direction? I'm starting to learn that I need to do that, which is also part of getting to that realization because the truth is, you know, I had to be honest with myself. Um, a lot of times when I'm going through a really dark moment, I don't even tell people. Or I may just mention it in one or two sentences. And I started realizing, well, they don't know how bad it is because you're not telling them. And because you're so good at masking and keeping it together, how will they ever know that you're about to collapse? So that is also part of my new revelation. Also realizing like, yeah, I do have to, to let people know how to be there for me. And I've started doing that with like friends and my husband as well. Can you give an example of some of the language that you've used in those situations? Um. Oh, actually, this was one that I came up with recently, and my husband thought it was great. But what I said was, it feels like you're drowning. And everyone is sitting down in pool chairs, watching you in the pool, saying, just swim. You know what to do. Just keep going. You'll be fine. And you're drowning. And what you need is someone to come and yank you out. Because in that moment of drowning, of course, I do have the skill of swimming. But in the drowning moment, obviously, I'm not able to use those skills. And that's how I explain it now. It's like, 
yes, I am able to talk myself out of things most days. But at the point when you're in a deep depression, your brain isn't even able to do that. And telling me to be positive or telling me to keep going is the equivalent of watching me drown and telling me to keep swimming when what I need you to do is jump into the pool and catch me. That's an amazing analogy and really helpful, I'm sure, for many people. So what is helpful for you to do for yourself to get through those dark times? That's the hard part with depression. It's like there's this cognitive side that knows what you need to do. Mm -hmm. But there's this other side that can't even bring yourself to do that. Honestly, like the last major depressive episode I had, it was at the hands of a friend that I kind of was able to get out of it because she really just kind of yanked me out. She was like, just come sleep in my house. She fed me. We talked. And yeah, I too have been trying to think, how can I do that for myself? Um, But more recently, I've started really, really small with just telling myself, just do one thing today. Because at the height of a depression, it's really hard to be productive. It's impossible to get out of bed. And so I sort of tell myself, okay, if there's one small task you can take care of today, what can you do? And I do it. And then I like, hella congratulate myself (laughs) afterwards. I'm like, yes, look at you. You made breakfast and you watered the plants and you're awesome. (laughs) That's amazing that number one, you identified that you could come up with one task for yourself. And number two, to celebrate those things instead of going, oh my God, I only did one thing. I, you know, I can't believe all the things I didn't accomplish. That's so not worth spending energy on. So it's huge that you made that transition for yourself. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say I made it, the transition. I can say it's something I'm working on, but yeah, I mean, the more time I spend with my depression, the more time I realize that a lot of the work is really trying to rewire your thoughts. But like I said, it's just, that's what makes it feel impossible for me because in a good day, I can rewire my thoughts. I am ordinarily, I think, pretty accomplished and was able to see myself through a lot of things. But like I said, with the pool analogy, it's like people who know how to swim can drown and telling them, to swim in that moment doesn't work because in that moment they can't do it, you know? And that's where I find the complexity behind depression and sort of snapping yourself out of it to be. It's like your brain is so ill at this point that it can't even begin to give itself healing and nurturing thoughts, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to managing your depression, you're also a caregiver for your husband who has leukemia. Right. And takes oral chemotherapy daily. What's it like to both have these different conditions, very different, I'm sure, from one another, but still manage this and support each other? Yeah, it's ironically kind of played out the way it is in society, where you find that people have a way better understanding and empathy for an illness like cancer versus an illness like depression, you know? And even though leukemia very much is an invisible illness, there is a sense I feel in our relationship where I still feel like mine is not the serious one. And I think that also because I'm such a good masker, um, and even when I'm not feeling that great, I can still sort of get up and be okay. I don't know if my 
partner even sees the need for me to be cared for in that way, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean, but I think it's interesting to say. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, so I think that in a very practical way, if, you know, one of the side effects of his illness is that he would experience a lot of physical pain. And when there's a bad pain day, it's just kind of understood everything will stop um, because it's pain, you know, it's physical, it's really tangible. But I feel like a bad mental health day doesn't necessarily come with screams of pain or the necessity to go to an emergency room or swelling, right? A, A mental health crisis doesn't have a look. And oftentimes it looks like me being lazy or me not wanting to get work done. And so I think a lot of the conflict comes from that. It's like, it's the whole, you don't look sick, so I don't know how to care for you. I just see you as being kind of mopey and silent and distant. And it's not kind of automatic. I know how to take care of you versus when you're in pain and we need to go to the emergency room. It's more of, I don't really know what to do in this situation. It's interesting you say that because part of me is shaking my head and the other part of me is saying, I think that there's a lot of people, myself included, who are living with invisible illnesses and do have aches and pains and different ailments that are not urgent that need to be, you know, taken to the ER or anything like that, but still are going through something that's invisible. And so there are times where, like I think about a few days ago, where I was just extremely lethargic. I was convinced I had mono. I had no other symptoms except just being completely weak and unable to get out of my bed. And otherwise, you know, if I put on clothes and walked out of my house, you would have no idea what I was going through. So I think it's an interesting thing not to say, you know, one is right or one is wrong or one's less important than the other. But I think it's something very relatable to all people living with different types of invisible illness. Right. And I totally agree with you in many ways. And like I said, his illness also is pretty invisible. But I think the difference is in a cancer diagnosis is something that people can somehow get a little better than depression. It's almost as if you went to work and you were in a lot of pain and you said, I have cancer. There would just be like a way more unanimous understanding and outflowing of empathy versus I have depression and I need to stay home and cry all day. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. There's sort of like a tangibility and a seriousness to cancer that people just automatically respect and understand, whoa, this is serious versus if you're depressed, it isn't always that hard to translate that. And it's still seen as something that you could probably overcome on your own. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Beekeepers Naturals. Honey has always been one of my favorite products and it's how I sweeten most things. I fell in love with Beekeepers Naturals because of the transparency they provide about their products. They know that consumers want products that are sustainable, high quality, and chemical free, and they truly deliver. Plus, they're doing everything they can to save the bees. Bees don't just make honey, they also make powerful superfoods like propolis, royal jelly, and my absolute favorite, bee pollen. I put bee pollen on top of my matcha lattes, and it's delicious. It's also a great boost of bee vitamins, minerals, and amino acids. Whether you want products that bring you endurance, immunity, productivity, or calm, 
there's a Beekeepers Naturals product for you. Try their superfoods from the hive by going to beekeepersnaturals.com slash visible and type in the code visible at checkout for 10% off. Again, that's beekeepersnaturals.com slash visible and type in the code visible at checkout for 10% off. And now back to the show. So what do you think we can do as a society to change something like that? Oh, these are the questions I ask myself all day. And I think a lot of good things are happening in terms of, you know, what they call the neurodiversity movement. And, you know, this is where I also take onus, right? And when I do actually reach out to friends, which is something that takes me a while to do, but it comes back to, I don't share what I'm going through. I don't talk about what it actually feels like. And I've been getting mad at people for not knowing and I have to take some accountability for not actually saying, I'm in distress, you know, like, I need help. And so there is some onus on my side. But I think on society's side, there has to be the listening, right? So you have to listen to what people say they feel, you know, you have to educate yourself. And especially if you're in your position of leadership, like you're a boss, and you have employees, there are people that you manage who may be going through this. If you're a teacher, you know, people who are in these positions where they work with people, I think also have to take some very proactive steps of trying to understand what neurodiversity is and trying to understand that their leadership styles have to reflect that and they have to understand what some of their people may be going through. I absolutely agree with you. So it's interesting you say that you haven't done a phenomenal job at sharing what you're going through. Meanwhile, you and your husband founded a magazine on chronic illness and disability that's called You Revolution or Uncomfortable Revolution. What inspired you to start this project, especially given your lack of sharing so much of your own story? Yeah, well, I guess that's kind of how life works, right? We kind of always project, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it comes out of me realizing how important it is. It comes out of our own sort of career experiences. So we both worked at the United Nations and my husband was fortunate to be in a position where he can get disability. And I think, you know, also going through things that I went through at work and only now putting pieces together and realizing where some things were my own mental illness and not even realizing the accommodations I needed in the workplace um, instead of me constantly trying to like make it work in a system that is not necessarily designed for someone whose mind is like mine. And, you know, feeling it was really important to work towards creating a society where people were just cognizant of this, because I think people, you know, the real pain I think of a lot of mental illness or invisible illness is just the lack of understanding and empathy, right? Like if we were living in a world where people could understand our struggle and, you know, in the best case scenario, say the right things, but more than anything, just understand and make accommodations. A lot of the suffering and pain that comes along with it will go away. And so we felt like this magazine would be the way to do that, to just start that conversation about, you know what, this is what it's really like to have the illness that I have. And we want people to understand and to have the right conversations about it. I love that so much. And I remember when I first discovered what you were doing and just loved the messaging and the language that you use on the site. So can you talk a little bit about what the concept is, who it's for, and who's contributing? 
Absolutely. The concept is really a magazine that reflects the reality of our world today, which is that um, a billion of us are living with a disability. In America alone, you have about a third of the population living with at least one chronic illness. And many people with chronic illnesses are living with at least three at one time. In terms of the younger generation, because of advances in medicine, you have children who are outgrowing childhood diseases, but becoming adults managing a chronic illness. So in general, we're, we're a sicker population, and many of us have disabilities, and that's not new, but it's just been ignored. And the concept is creating a media experience that reflects that, but does it in a way that we're still talking about our life. We're just talking about life as someone living with a chronic illness or with a disability. For example, there are a lot of disability sites that are extremely functional and provide great information and news. We're trying to create a entertaining media experience because people with disabilities also want to read about sex and careers and makeup and fashion and all these different things, but they want to read about it in a way that reflects their life and they want to read about it in a way that their unique needs are being considered when we discuss things. So that's the experience we're trying to create. And visually, that was important for me to achieve as well. My like vision for the site is I want to have images of all different types of bodies and for it to just be how the world is, you know? that we can have an image of any kind of disability. And the article mightn't have to be about that disability, but it just might be, this is a picture of a person who wears a prosthetic leg, and this is just a person with a prosthetic leg, and that's all. This is what a particular type of body could look like. So that's the overall vision. That's kind of a mouthful, but we're trying to really create that sort of magazine of the future where... You know, we really think of body positivity as also including chronic illness, disability, and neurodiversity, because I feel like so far body positivity has been very limited to the more aesthetic side, so your size and your shape. But we want to say that body positivity is also celebrating all of our neurodiversities and all of our medical conditions and all of our disabilities. I love that so, so much. I think it's such a great point who have realized that there really wasn't anyone owning the space of talking about these different topics, sort of normal everyday things that may have a different spin for someone living with an invisible or chronic illness or disability, of course. So I love that you're tackling that. Your website says, welcome to body positivity without ableism. In your experience, how has ableism affected you? What has that been like? So that's a really good question because... I, not until recently, have even entertained the idea of self-identifying as disabled. And I guess a lot of that has to do with the whole hierarchy of disability and the fact that we've always thought of it as, you know, not having a limb, not being mobile or whatever. And also knowing now that that is just so much more expanded to include mental illness. And I think it's who that has their latest definition of disability, which I personally like, which says disability is the experience in which your physical features do not match the features of the built environment around you. So you're basically having a mismatch experience. 
And so as a woman with mental illness, I see that more and more, you know, I'm with depression and anxiety. I'm constantly in a space where I have to mask or pretend or coach myself into certain social skills when I'm feeling a particular way because the world isn't designed to accommodate me when I might be anxious or depressed, you know? So it's been very new for me to even think of myself as disabled. But when I think through ableism, specifically referring to mental illness, and I look back, I think that this is where a lot of the struggles I've had in the professional world, in the world of school and and getting along with other people, um, and always sort of being the one forced to be like everyone else instead of living in a world where people understand that hey, there are people with mental illnesses who behave differently and we can try to create spaces that accommodate them. Absolutely. And so what is your role compared to your husband's role in the magazine? So this is where we sort of try to make the neurodiversity work. So for me, I really struggle with what they call executive functioning skills. So being sort of very organized and um, I'm really more the creative visionary type and we complement each other very well in that way so my role is really the more creative setting the vision for the magazine the vision for the tone and the content and what we should cover and all the design and aesthetic related stuff marketing and because he's just so much better at organizational skills he takes on that sort of operational role of you know making sure that the bills are paid on time and Everything's super organized. He's also really great with social media as well, Twitter and Facebook. But that's where we sort of split roles. We kind of go with who's better at what. That's great. That's playing on your strengths. So where are you finding your contributors? We have a submission process and most of our contributors sort of just submit content. Sometimes we republish from a couple sites. So we've reached out to sites who have, you know, republishing agreements and we let them know, like, we really like your content. And so we curate some of the best of things that we read elsewhere. We've also had the fellows um, and we should see their work coming out around September, October of this year. So we have a writing fellow who did six great long form journalist pieces for us. We have a podcaster, we have an illustrator, we have a photographer. So those are kind of the three ways that we're getting our contributors right now. I love that. And how often are you releasing a new issue of the magazine? So, I mean, we use the word magazine, but we're not sort of traditional issue coming out in that way we started off with the concept that we would have sort of categories of topics that we cover but then every two or three months we would do what we call an issue which is sort of focused on a specific topic so let's see we launched last year and so far we have three sort of special issues and those issues are just ways of curating content around a very specific topic so we did cancer at first The next one we did was on mental health. And then the current one we have now is focused on sex with a chronic illness or disability. And if people want to write for You Revolution, how do they do that? They go to our website and they hit the button that says submit at the top of the page in our menu navigation. And all of the instructions about how to submit is right there. And so if our listeners could take away one message from You and You Revolution, 
what would it be? I think the message is inclusion. That is really what we see as our central brand. It's the idea that we each as individuals need to really ingest the concept that humans really are very different on the inside, that our brains are wired, that a lot of us are walking around with unhealed trauma, with hurt, with pain. A lot of us are walking around with physical medical conditions. A lot of us are just dealing with stuff. And I feel like we've gotten to this point where we haven't been able to see that in each other anymore. And we judge each other. And our central message is, what if we just opened our eyes a little bit deeper and tried to think about how people are wired differently and how they might be experiencing the world differently from us right now? And how could we make a better experience for everyone? So glad that you decided to create this platform. It's such an amazing concept. And I loved it from day one of learning about it. So thrilled to have you here. How can people learn more about you, your husband, and you Revolution? So you can go to you Revolution's website. That's you as in the letter U, revolution.com. All one word, www.urevolution.com. And I have a personal website where I talk about all of my work, uh, my humanitarian work. And that's at corinnelgray.com, C-O-R-I-N-N-E. L-G-R-A-Y dot com. And my husband is at Set Pellier. Oh my gosh, we just have the hardest URLs. That's... <laughs> <laughs> we'll be sure to include all these links in the show notes and on iTunes. <laughs> it's French for seven pillars, but it's Set P-I-L-I-E-R-S dot com. But as former humanitarians, we blogged a lot about our life and I have a lot of stuff about my work over the years and where I've sort of come to this point of fighting for inclusion in all forms. Amazing. Thank you so much, Corinne. You are most welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com, follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram, and join our new online community, facebook.com slash community. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.